Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the People Processes podcast, where we dive into the updates, interviews, and yes, even processes that will help your organization thrive. My name is Rami Alijil, and my goal is to help HR managers and business owners create an environment where their people are their organization's competitive advantage. Today, we're doing a deep dive on the questions we've received that concern the FLSA, Fair Labor Standards Act. This is part two, an extension of our episode from Monday. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen to that one too. Oh, and don't forget, we post to LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and I would love to hear from you on there with any questions. You can also subscribe to us by going to peopleprocesses.com, where you will receive special subscriber-only content for free. People Processes is also available wherever you get your podcast. It syndicates on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Stitcher Radio. Let's dive in. So, first question of the day. What does discretion and independent judgment mean when applying the duties test? Okay, this is going to be a real kind of longer answer than we're used to. So the Department of Labor defines the use of discretion and independent judgment as more than the use of skill in applying well-established techniques, procedures, or specific standards described in like manuals or process guides. The use of discretion and independent judgment implies that one has authority to make an independent choice free from immediate direction or supervision. However, discretion and independent judgment can be used even if the decision or recommendation is reviewed by a higher authority in the organization. Discretion and independent judgment does not require that the decisions being made have to be final or free from review. The fact that one's decisions may be subject to review and that upon occasions the decision are revised or reversed after review does not mean that one is not using discretion and independent judgment. So, the phrase discretion and independent judgment must be applied in light of all the effects involved in the particular situation in which the questions arise. Factors include, but are not limited to, 1. Whether the employee has authority to formulate, affect, interpret, or implement management policies or operating practices. Two, whether the employee carries out major's assignments in conducting the operations of the business. Three, whether the employee performs that work affects, whether the employee performs that work affects business operations to a substantial degree. Even if the employee's assignments are related to operation of a particular segment of the business, does it have a substantial impact? Uh, Whether the employee has authority to commit the employee in matters that have significant financial impact whether the employee has the authority to waive or deviate from established policies and procedures without prior approval. And that's a big one. That's always an easy test. Whether the employee has authority to negotiate and bind the company, whether it whether the employee provides consultation or expert advice to management, so if they advise you, not you tell them, whether the employee is involved in planning long or short-term business objectives, whether the employee investigates and resolves matters of significance on behalf of management themselves, and whether the employee represents the company in handling complaints, arbitrating disputes, or resolving grievances. Any of those um, are, are factors that contribute to that discretion and independent judgment decision. It does not include applying well-established techniques, procedures, or specific standards described in manuals or other sources does not include clerical or secretarial work, recording or tabulating data, or performing mechanical, repetitive, recurrent, or routine work. So when you're looking, it's almost easier to see what it does not include, right? See if any of those apply. Uh, Well-established techniques, clerical or secretarial, recording or tabulating data, repetitive, recurrent, routine work. Those are signs that this is an hourly position, a non-exempt position. But if they can do things and make make judgments that then affect the business, that's an exempt employee. 
Hope that helps. Uh, that list, by the way, is on our show notes on our website. If it's easier to read them through, just click on uh, peopleprocesses.com, go to this episode, and you'll see it all listed out right there for you. Next question. If two or more employees work the same job duties that meet the administrative exemption job duties test, but earn different rates of pay, can some of them be classified as exempt and others classified as non-exempt? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The white collar exemption requires an employee to be paid on a salary basis that is at least the minimum salary threshold. As of right now, that's $913 per week, I believe. Um, well, that's the increased one. It's actually lower than that. But there's a salary uh, minimum, 28000 something like that, uh, and meet the jobs duties test. So if they both meet the jobs duties test, but you're not paying that minimum salary threshold, uh, then you don't have then then you have two separate classifications. One is FLSA exempt, and one isn't. If the employee meets the requirements of the job duties test and the minimum salary threshold, then the employee may be classified as exempt. If the employee fails to meet any part of that criteria, the employee would not meet the exemption status and must be classified as non-exempt. The exemption is applied on an employee by employee basis, not by a particular job class or department or any of that kind of stuff. So yeah, no problem as long as you know if you're paying one of them. Uh, uh, if it doesn't meet those requirements, you can absolutely do that. <clears throat> Ooh, uh, a scary question with no explanation. What are the penalties if an employer misclassifies an employee? Well, try not to. Uh, there's no fixed dollar amount for penalty uh, for the misclassification. However, the financial burden it, it can be quite costly. Costs will include the back pay plus interest of up to three years. Liquidated damages equal to the amount of unpaid wages and more in some states. So some states have like trouble laws. You have to cover any attorney's fees and court costs. And there are what are called willful violation penalties. If you have a history of doing this or you knew somehow that this was not the case, those are up to about 10000 in fines and six months in prison. So if you know and you do it anyway, you're in real trouble. But if you've just made a mistake, basically you're going to have to pay the difference up to three years. You have to go back three years, pay them what they should have been paid, plus some interest. Um, and, and that's the case in most states. In, in a few states, you'll have to pay a little bit more than that. They may ask for a little bit more. But if you go back two episodes, by the way, there's a new uh, Department of Labor uh, program where you can uh, – basically audit yourself and come up with that issue. And if you do, then all of your interest and damages are uh, waived, right? You just have to pay them correctly and correct your previous records and you're good to go. That's a six-month pilot program that just started. So maybe time to take advantage of those if you're noticing one of these issues. Uh, go back, uh, I think, two episodes, something like that. Go listen back. You'll be able to find that. And another question. Can we pay our non-exempt employees a salary? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Non-exempt employees may be paid an hourly wage, salary, commission, or fee, as long as they are compensated for all the hours worked at a rate not less than the state or local minimum wage, and are compensated at one and a half times their regular rate of pay for all hours worked beyond 40 in the work week, or eight hours in a day for some states. So you can pay them a salary, but if they work more than 40 hours, you got to pay them overtime, or eight hours in a day in some states, you got to pay them overtime. That's the real key. And that salary has to cover at least a minimum wage, okay? But yeah, no problem. A lot of companies do it. Uh, last question of the day. I have a non-exempt employee traveling by airplane to another state for a business trip. Do I have to compensate the employee for this travel time? 
So there's what's called the Portal to Portal Act. It's an amendment to the FLSA. Generally, non-exempt employees must be paid for their travel time that falls within their regular work hours, but not for the time spent traveling that is not part of their regular work hours, unless they were actually working while traveling. If the travel time is in addition to their regular 40-hour work week, um, and of course other state laws define overtime eligible time differently, then those additional hours would be paid at the overtime rate. So travel time pay issues can be really complicated, and a lot of states have different additional requirements beyond the federal rules. For example, an employer must pay an employee for time spent traveling to and from another city in the same day. However, if the employee doesn't first report to the usual work location before beginning the travel, the employer may be able to deduct the time the employee usually takes commuting to work. So There's some real nitty-gritty stuff on there. For longer overnight trips when the employee travels to another state on a non-work day, employers must count the travel time during what would be considered normal work hours. So, for example, 8 to 5 as hours worked. So, you know, if if Sunday they take a drive for three hours Sunday night, and it's after 5, and they normally work 8 to 5 Monday to Friday, that may not have to be paid if they're traveling across state lines and they're going to stay overnight. If it's between, if they, if they, if they're going to go Friday, if the, the, if it needs to be there Friday and they travel Thursday during work hours, absolutely those do need to be paid. If you're unclear about how time should be paid for a non-exempt employee's travel, you need to check with employment counsel. It's just so complicated. There's lots of little nitty gritty issues. So it's worth uh, getting all that in writing from an attorney for your state uh, in particular. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, just as a reminder, in all things, we are providing generic information uh, based on what you guys have given us on a question. This is not legal advice. So if you have in-depth questions, please, and you're not sure, double check with an attorney. In the meantime, I hope this has helped. I hope you guys have learned something. If there is anything we can answer for you, reach out to us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. We'd love to hear from you, help you answer your questions. We have additional information coming up soon. And uh, thank you for spending some time with us. Go out there, have a great day, and get your work done. This is Rami with People Processes signing out.